Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, the European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre. And what a fantastic episode we have today. We are very privileged to welcome to the podcast Professor Joshua Schernes. Professor Schernes is Director of Graduate Students and the Associate Chair of the Governmental Department at Georgetown University. But most important for today's conversation is the author of the book, Liberalism in Dark Times, The Liberal Ethos in the 20th Century, and this is a Princeton University Press publication. This is a book that Alan Ryan, the author of On Politics, praised as whole, original and distinctive. Anyone interested in liberalism and its history ought to read this book. As you can imagine, we can't make justice to this book that I read with great interest in this conversation, but we do go into some major points like the understanding of ruthlessness, the counterpoint with tempered liberalism, and the influence of some very important authors like Reinhold Niebuhr, Albert Camus, Raymond Aron, and Isaiah Berlin. And we also go into the importance of liberalism to be solution-oriented. But before I bring you Professor Chernus, there is a moment in the conversation you will notice that Professor mentions that he studied liberalism in the between the two great wars period. And in the book, he goes into what is called Cold War liberalism. And this moment that I record is as we see the attacks in Ukraine, a country that wishes to join the family of liberal democracies. And in this period of tragedy and war in Europe, we are reminded of the importance of liberalism, even in the dark times. So now, with no further ado, I bring you Professor Joshua Schernes. I'm here with Professor Joshua Schernes. Professor, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to talk both to and through the, the European liberals. Oh, yes. And it's great to have you here because the book is Liberalism in Dark Times, the Liberal Ethos in the 20th Century. This is a great read. Congratulations for a fantastic book I had such a great time reading it. But before we go into the publication, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am a political theorist, a um, historian of political thought. Most of my writing and reading and teaching focus on the history of liberalism and the history of political ideas in the 20th century, as the book uh, reflects. And I also teach a number of courses and supervise a number of graduate projects on topics throughout the history of political thought. That gives you a perspective of liberalism in the 20th century, and that comes across really, really nicely on your publication. But before we go into that, I, I must warn our listeners, you have to pick up the book and you have to read it and, and get it. Because Professor uh, Joshua does something that is really unsettling, and that is you confront the reader as we read through uh, your book and to the fact that you go into ruthlessness, and we're going to touch on that in a minute. But you make the, 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 the clear warning that even liberal-minded people, we can easily become sustain and even compartmentalize ruthlessness. So with that intro, please get into the one of the key topics of your book, which was ruthlessness, and how this can expand so easily even to liberal people. Yeah, the, the book does start with ruthlessness. And by this, I should explain that I mean both a feature of behavior or action and also a feature of character or a feature of the way that we think and feel. And it's a tendency to disregard or to reject any sort of compunction or scruples or hesitation or doubt and to um, act in ways, think in ways that just run roughshod over concern for others or concern for larger principles of justice or the worry that you might not be right or might be doing something wrong. And with this lack of compunction or self-doubt or self-restraint to do terrible harm to other people in the name of some cause that you think is just, some principle, um, or for the sake of your own 
power or your own success. So I think we can see both a morally inspired ruthlessness and a less morally inspired, a more venal sort of ruthlessness, both of which I think are major problems in politics for anyone who desires a decent existence, um, an existence that's not full of cruelty and violence and exploitation and suspicion and mutual hostility among people, but especially a problem for liberals. Uh, liberalism, as I discuss in the book, is, I think, at its core, partly a, and this isn't necessarily how it's always thought of, but I think it's it's an important and valuable way of thinking of it. It's really defined by opposition to ruthlessness. It's a way of thinking about and practicing politics that tries to limit political power and limit what people do in the pursuit and use of political power through imposing various limits on what people can do. And the focus of liberal theory has tended to be, not exclusively, but to a very great extent, on the institutional limits or the, the limits in terms of general rules, um, general functioning of institutions or organizations to limit the way in which human beings try to exert power over one another. But one of the points that I tried to make in the book is that looking at ethical limits, looking at the, the both norms and personal dispositions that can inhibit us or, or steer us away from acting ruthlessly towards others is important to establishing and sustaining a liberal political and social order. And that when people, liberals or not liberals, um, reject those norms and those internal restraints, uh, what have been called paper barriers, uh, the barriers of law and institutions, are often insufficient. And I think we often see in politics that if people are driven by a really ruthless mindset or spirit, they can quite effectively subvert or override um, or get around uh, the institutional limits placed on them. So that that's a large part of why I think ruthlessness is so important. But you also mentioned the particular worry that I have, which is specifically morally inspired ruthlessness and the way in which people can often go from what I think and what I think many of us would think is a morally admirable and idealistic position and set of motivations to acting really horrifically. And this is very much informed by my interest in history and also my, my observation of politics around me. And even if I'm honest, a certain amount of introspection, seeing how, how easy it is and how strong a tendency there is to really become intoxicated by self-righteousness um, and to fall into the trap of excusing all kinds of meanness or dishonesty or even you know, outright cruelty and violence um, because you think yourself in the right. And you know, I think that I, I've seen this in myself. I've seen this in many colleagues who I won't name, very mild forms of this, but also the extreme form of this you can see in history and figures, many of whom have, have long fascinated me, figures like Robespierre and the other Jacobins, or some of the leading figures in the Russian Revolution. Um, not all of them. I mean, some of them were, were just ruffians and people who I think, you know, as, as in the case of Stalin, say, had a, a significant personality disorder from the beginning. But there are many of them who really did start out as genuinely idealistic, well-intentioned, committed to ideals either that I also believe in, or at least that I can see as being plausible and attractive from their perspective. They didn't start out as monsters, far from it. 
they were in many ways more conscientious, more morally serious than most of those around them. But they became monsters. They became perpetrators of really terrible evil that damaged their societies deeply. And so I think trying to both understand the mentality, the assumptions, the beliefs, and also the psychological process through which people make that journey from idealism to ruthlessness, and also thinking about what it would take to prevent it or what might counteract it, uh, struck me as a really important topic, both for anyone who's interested in politics, but particularly for someone who's interested in and committed to liberal politics. As a segue, you go into that difference very elegantly in your book, and that liberalism and ruthlessness. Actually, you propose that modern ruthlessness is can be seen as a response to perceived liberal failures, which was a very interesting point. And then you propose liberalism to respond to that ruthlessness. And that and this is also an idea that you present from Isaiah Berlin, mm -hmm. and you call this liberal predicament. Please go into that. Yeah, sure. It's, it is a phrase that I take from Berlin, although we use it a bit differently, uh, but in connected ways. And I think that one thing, just going, going back a moment to the point you just made about the way that this ruthlessness is often inspired by a sense of liberal failure, is that, as I try to suggest in the book, there are two sorts of liberal failures that often encourage this turn to ruthlessness and the, the embrace of anti-liberal movements or ideologies that celebrate ruthlessness. One is a, a more sort of practical failure where liberal regimes or liberal governments are just not delivering what they promise or not delivering what people want. So you see mm -hmm. when you know liberal governments are not able to prevent economic misery or civil disorder, civil unrest, people turning to other forms of politics for alternatives. Mm -hmm. But there's also, I think, a, a failure to, of, of liberal government or liberal theory to be inspiring or to uh, provide a, a sense of meaning or a sense of emotionally satisfying politics. And a point that I make is that in the interwar period on which I focus, which is the, the formative period for the strand of liberalism that the book is looking at, people are, as historians have long emphasized, uh, disillusioned with liberalism due to all kinds of failures. You know, the, the Great Depression, the failure of the League of Nations to be an effective institution. There, there are plenty of reasons why liberalism seems to just not be working well, not accomplishing what it's promised. But there's also this sense that liberal politics is just too ethically low, that it empowers and it produces ethical mediocrities and a kind of character that is just not sufficiently excellent or inspiring. And that's, I think, mm -hmm. related to part of what Berlin describes as the liberal predicament, which is the predicament of liberals who are sort of caught between opposing sides, which are absolutely convinced of their own rightness and that have the appeal of conviction, the appeal of intellectual or moral self-confidence, whereas liberals are hesitant, doubtful, conflicted. Mm -hmm. They are haunted by the thought that maybe their critics are right and they are wrong. And this just puts them at a, a deep disadvantage. Now, I use the, the term liberal predicament to refer to something that's connected, but it's somewhat different, which is once you have a fairly powerful tendency against liberalism, once, once liberal movements or regimes or ideas are challenged by really ruthless, self-confident, uh, dedicated 
anti-liberal movements, then how are liberals to respond? And how are they to respond to the fact that those who reject all of the restraints that liberals accept, the rules that liberals think we should play by in politics, those anti-liberals have an advantage. They'll fight dirty and not feel bad about doing so. They will violate the various norms that liberals feel more bound by. And the predicament is, should liberals in that situation emulate their opponents and also become ruthless, which again is both a matter of acting ruthlessly, acting in ways that are cruel and destructive and treacherous towards others without hesitation or inhibition or remorse, but also thinking in a ruthless way, becoming more dogmatic, more fanatical, more sure of one's mm -hmm. own rightness and deaf to counter arguments. So should liberals do that? Should they be just as tough and ruthless and dogmatic as their opponents because you need to fight fire with fire? Or should liberals remain true to liberal principles and values, even though these may inhibit their political effectiveness? And that presents, I think, a real dilemma because to not emulate their opponents seems to risk making liberals politically impotent. Uh, it risks political defeat, which could lead to the collapse mm -hmm. of liberalism itself. But to emulate the anti-liberals, I think, risks liberals undermining their own cause, um, discrediting it or becoming just as oppressive and inflicting just as much suffering as their opponents. And we have, unfortunately, all too many historical examples of liberals either cracking down on opponents in ruthless ways or allying with or passively accepting the actions of others who are cracking down on radical or revolutionary movements. Um, some of these cases might be justifiable in, in situations of real emergency, but I'm inclined to think that most of these historical cases aren't and haven't turned out well for liberalism. Uh, that you know, when liberals have made that deal with the devil, if you will, of using anti-liberal means, allying with anti-liberal <laughs> forces, adopting anti-liberal ways of thinking and acting, uh, it really has damaged liberalism itself in the, the either the short or the long term. Well, fortunately, we have you here, and uh, in in your brilliant book, you do go to a solution which is called tempered liberalism, and we're going to go into that in a minute. But before, it's it's very interesting listening to you describe in such in in, in such a perfect fashion the way that between the wars we have also economic problems, and I was thinking about the most recent economic problems, mm -hmm. and how that was also turned into a weapon against liberalism, mm -hmm. even if it, there's, there's a misnomer in here because it actually was neoliberal uh, policies mm -hmm. that made us go into austerity and into crisis. It wasn't liberal, but that is a discussion for other day. But it, it's, it's quite interesting how history repeats itself. And you are an historian, <laughs> so I'm sure you see this happen all the time. Yes, well, and if I can just say something about that. Um, I mean, Absolutely. I think you make a, a really important point that neoliberalism and liberalism are not the same. And that's, that's something that I, I often feel I have to remind many of my colleagues um, who, who study political ideologies. Uh, but I talk in, in the book, and I won't necessarily go into the full account now, but I, I talk about how the, the strand of liberalism that I discuss, tempered liberalism, differs from neoliberalism. And I think one way in which it does is related to this notion of ruthlessness, that one of the problems mm -hmm. with neoliberalism is that it's defined, although there's, of course, a lot of debate over what neoliberalism is. But I think one feature of what's usually described as neoliberalism is this really dogmatic dedication to the idea that a market economy works perfectly without any sort of government intervention or response to problems and that you should um, you know, drive 
the market model, the minimally regulated or completely unregulated market model as far as you possibly can and just accept and justify any suffering that results from that. And so I think that to to some extent, austerity and, and many of the responses uh, to the problems caused by austerity are examples of a kind of liberal or I, I would say a particular offshoot of liberal, neoliberal um, ruthlessness in action. So before we go into tempered liberalism with a little more detail, it is very interesting reading in your book that you yeah. go into the thought and the writing of four authors in particular, Reinhold Niebauer, Albert Camus, Raymond Aron, and Isaiah Berlin. And of course, for our listeners that are not so versed in this kind of literature, tell us why these four authors in particular for you were, were important for you to have a substantial part of your book focusing on their thoughts and their work. Yeah, well, this is actually a, a somewhat tough thing for me um, insofar as there, there <laughs> have been questions about the selection of these figures. And, and in particular, some readers have questioned why all of the, the major figures that I look at or the figures who I, I spend considerable time discussing are all dead white males. And that's, as I think is a, a fair point, um, I think that part of it does simply reflect the historical importance or significance of these figures in that all of them were recognized as major public intellectual figures in the post-World War II era. And in Niebuhr's case, before that, um, Niebuhr was an American theologian of German ancestry, as, as his name suggests, who was really a leading voice in the interwar period in the 20s and 30s of a very particular sort of radical critique of the then dominant liberalism, a, a liberalism that he thought was far too optimistic and in, insufficiently aware of the, the ineradicable role of conflict and oppression in society. And in addition to being a major theologian, a major figure in Protestant theological circles and even an influence on other religious traditions, um, he was a leading political activist. And after or, or during and after World War II, as he moved back towards liberalism from being more of a left-wing critic of liberalism, he really helped to define both the intellectual framework and the political agenda of American liberalism in the Cold War and was a, a significant influence far beyond theological circles. One um, post-war writer joked that there should be an organization among American intellectuals called Atheists for Niebuhr. <laughs> and obviously, on the other side of the Atlantic, Albert Camus is a major figure, winner of the Nobel Prize, uh, leading novelist, uh, but also really a representative for many of a morally scrupulous, questioning, rigorous, but non-dogmatic form, not necessarily of liberalism. Um, I claim him for liberalism, which is a, a somewhat controversial <laughs> move, uh, given that his own roots were in a, a sort of anarcho-socialist tradition in France. But he did come to be a leading critic of moral abuses on both sides in the Cold War and someone who retained a great deal of um, moral and political independence, but also a leading critic of the dishonesty and the moral compromises or the embrace of immorality um, among French left-wing intellectuals, something that he was joined in doing by Raymond Aron, who otherwise was a quite different figure, a philosopher, sociologist, and newspaper columnist um, at some points in his career close to 
De Gaulle um, at other points, mutually critical um, of De Gaulle, and also a leading figure in what came to be known as Cold War liberalism, someone who was actually associated with some of the figures who were involved in founding what became known as the neoliberal movement, which we were just referring to. Um, also, however, associated with various Marxist or neo-Marxist figures, um, someone who I think in his later years after the French unrest, the French events of 1968, came to be somewhat more sympathetic to the, the center-right more more narrowly defined, but who for much of his career was really, again, an independent, questioning, skeptical figure, much more politically tough-minded, much more of a realist than Camus, um, but also very critical of the way in which, again, particularly the French left, but also the right, and also even some of his fellow liberals, um, more embracing ruthlessness as in the pursuit of their political goals. Um, so he's primarily known as a critic of the, the French left and indeed the international left, but he also was critical of McCarthyism. He was um, a critic on more political and moral grounds, uh, but still a critic of French colonialism and someone who also, I think, wrote very perceptively and deeply about philosophical issues, particularly the philosophy of history. And finally, Isaiah Berlin, who was Russian-born but spent his whole career in Britain, um, was a bit less of a public figure. These, these other figures were much more engaged in, directly in political activism. Berlin was much more hesitant about it, but he was, for many both within academia and outside of academia, uh, a leading proponent of liberalism uh, to, to the extent that we, in the discipline of political theory, teach and study sort of mid-20th century Cold War era liberal political thought. Berlin's work is a fundamental touchstone for that. And Berlin, I think, most extensively developed the moral theory, uh, which Berlin called value pluralism or ethical pluralism, which I think more or less explicitly underlies the thinking of all of these figures. And also, I think in part because he was someone who observed politics more than he directly intervened in it, also I think expressed some of the ambivalence about political commitment itself and awareness of the dangers of uh, political militancy or, or sort of over um, investment in politics or over commitment to politics. That is also an important part of this strand of thinking. So as I've tried to indicate, all of these figures are historically important and recognized widely in the scholarly literature and in histories of the time as major proponents of liberalism or something close to liberalism in the Cold War period. Um, and they also complement each other. They involve or they display um, different sides of what I call tempered liberalism. But they also all do share certain core features of tempered liberalism, and that, and which we'll we'll get into in a minute, and that I think does distinguish them from a number of other figures of the period who it it would have been great to discuss, but that would have made for a, a more unwieldy book and a somewhat less focused one. And I do think that they're they're not only among these figures, but among these figures, there are interesting and instructive strands of connection or affinity that I wanted to focus on that you wouldn't get as clearly in some of their contemporaries. And that leads us exactly to temperate liberalism and what you call temporal liberalism testament. 
and from your historical analysis then you have the help of the review of these authors and you try to present a solution for uh, contemporaneous problems regarding liberalism, regarding liberalism could losing some of his potency and some of his effect and ruthlessness can take the place. And actually, and this is not an exhaustive list, but on your testament, you go into radical equality, fighting spirit, spirit of prudence, forbearance, openness to doubt, <laughs> ethical projects, and resistance to ruthlessness. So tell us, please, how can we get from here to there where you have that testament, that tool that we can use mm. and, and, and to promote temporal liberalism and, and to have a revival of liberalism? Okay, well, that, that is a, a very difficult question and um, some, somewhat outside of my comfort zone in, insofar as, you know, I, I realized long ago that I was, I think, better at and certainly much more confident in uh, diagnosing problems and talking about other people's solutions to them or responses to them than offering any sort of solutions of my own, which is one reason why I've gone into academia and into the history of political thought rather than into um, being a policymaker or a pundit or um, even a political theorist in my own right, as opposed to a historian. Well, sorry to, sorry to yeah. interrupt you, Professor. You probably would make a lot more money by being a yes. pundit. So. <laughs> yes, but I, I, will, I will try to respond to that, that very important and very hard question since it is naturally raised by the book and raised by the, the topics that I discuss. I first want to go back and say a little more about what temperate liberalism is before talking about how we might get there, uh, because the two are, are linked. And so, as I've already, I think, indicated, uh, what I call temperate liberalism is a particular strand of liberal theory or a way of thinking about liberalism that is different from a number of more familiar or dominant versions of liberal theory. First of all, it's less optimistic or less tied to theories or narratives of progress. Um, it's less based on or oriented toward abstract theories of rights or justice. It's less focused on what we might call the architectonic level of political thought, thinking about the design of institutions, the general framework of society. And I call it tempered liberalism because, first of all, it's a liberalism that's been tempered, that is to say, chastened, but ultimately strengthened by criticism, by struggle, by tribulation. It's tempered in the sense that it seeks to maintain a poise of balance between and against different extremes. But also, I call it tempered because it's a liberalism that centers on personal temperament, uh, seeking not to advance a general theory or a program of institutional design or a set of philosophical theses, um, but rather it seeks to cultivate a particular way of thinking about and engaging in political life. And this relates to what I call in the book ethos. And I should say I sort of casually fastened on the term early in, in working on this project because I noticed that a number of other academic political theorists were using the term ethos. And I, it seemed to be related to something that I was interested in. And so I thought, oh, well, they're all using this term, so everyone must know what it means, and it must mean something very precise and clear, so <laughs> I will use it as well. And then I discovered that actually, it turns out there's a lot of unclarity about what ethos means, at least in some quarters, and that a lot of people use the term without clearly defining it. So part of the project was me just reading and thinking uh, about what ethos means and developing my own definition and sharing it with others and having them find it completely unclear and unhelpful and going back and redefining it and so on. Uh, what I ultimately came to is the idea that an ethos is a sort of constellation or, or web or complex of 
different elements that hang together that it, that it encompasses personal sensibility or temperament or what we might call character, as well as a larger framework of perceptions of the world, habits of thought, evaluations of what's valuable. Um, and I think it, it's probably helpful to illustrate it by going back to this idea of ruthlessness that I began with, um, that it, ruthlessness uh, can mean a way of acting. It can just describe actions, um, but it, it can also describe a certain ethos. And if you embrace ruthlessness as an ethos or an ethos of ruthlessness, that means that you conduct yourself ruthlessly. You think ruthlessly. You just dismiss hesitations, doubts, scruples. You shut out anything that might get in your way. And you also think that ruthlessness represents a good way of being, an admirable character quality, a correct perception of what is good or right, how the world works and how to work in the world. And that, I think, is different from you know, having the occasional impulse to act ruthlessly or to be you know, ruthless or, un, or harsh or blunt in some cases or to admire some people who happen to be ruthless on occasion. That's, that's different from really embracing and cultivating ruthlessness as a feature of how you think about yourself, how you relate to the world around you. Um, how you evaluate others. And this can also hold true of both other qualities which are very different from ruthlessness, things like humility or tolerance or generosity or forbearance, uh, or, and I think this, this is more accurate, not single dispositions or single features of character, but rather webs or complexes of these things. And so you, you mentioned earlier uh, several of the dispositions or qualities of character that I suggest are part of this way of thinking that I call temperance liberalism. Um, you know, commitment to equality, a spirit of prudence, forbearance, openness to doubt, resilience, resistance to ruthlessness, and so on. So the, the question of how we can actually save liberalism or how we can protect it against assaults is not a question that I have been able to solve. I wish that I had, and if I felt that I had, I would go into punditry or policymaking um, and, you know, would be lobbying people actively. No, uh, punditry, punditry, sir, and don't go okay. to, no, no, punditry, okay, that's where I, the money is. I, I do know that by second hand, but, um, but I do think that at least part of the solution or part of the response is trying to cultivate a, a particular ethos. And so then there's a question of, you know, how do you do that? So I think that just as a starting point and what I hope the book does or helps people to do is just recognizing the importance of first remaining resistant to the, to the temptation to be ruthless or to valorize and celebrate ruthlessness, to be aware of that temptation in ourselves and in those around us, and to recognize how dangerous it is, to secondly remain committed to certain liberal ideals and trying to act at least in our political engagement in ways that are guided by these dispositions that you've mentioned, and really, again, exercise some fairly unsparing, as much as we can, um, unsparing and clear-sighted self-analysis or, or self-evaluation of how we're acting, how we're responding to others, but also at the same time being flexible about matters of policy, not being dogmatic or unimaginative or intellectual lazy, intellectually lazy when thinking about ways to translate these liberal principles into action. 
And I think it's important to note that all of the figures I discuss were insistent on some sort of fidelity or constancy to a certain ethical core of liberalism, to certain ideals and standards. But they Mm -hmm. were also deeply critical of any kind of rigid dogma when it came to policy. They realized that liberalism needs to adapt to changing circumstances while remaining true to a certain spirit or a certain moral sense. And so they were ready to criticize certain policies that had been adopted by earlier liberals and to really favor pragmatic experimentation responses to what experience showed was working or not working, provided again that that stayed within certain limits of both principle and prudence that are important to liberalism. So not adopting um, either a dogmatic adherence to the, the policies of past eras, but also not embracing a kind of unprincipled pragmatism that's willing to jettison certain basic values or certain insights of liberalism, including, as I said earlier, this idea that um, any kind of unchecked or unrestrained power is deeply dangerous. Um, You can recognize that and maintain both ethical and institutional limits on the use of power while also using the limited power that governments do have and do need to have in more innovative ways. I also think that in, in addition to just this attempt to try to avoid the temptations of ruthlessness, the temptations of dogmatism or complacency or a kind of intellectual stultification, um, another thing that we can do or another thing that I think some people need to do is to engage in what I call and what I develop in the conclusion of the book, the process or the activity of exemplification. That is to say, putting the values and dispositions of temperate liberalism into practice in a very public way in order to try to inspire others to emulate that. And I think that one of the problems and one of the things that we have to confront now is the fact that ruthlessness and illiberalism can be deeply attractive and inspiring to people. Liberalism with its counsels of moderation and self-restraint and forbearance and listening to the other side and tolerating disagreement and accepting imperfection can be deeply uninspiring and deeply burdensome. And I think many people are feel in a perverse way liberated from uh, liberalism itself or from the, the sort of moral demands of liberalism if they feel they can throw off these restraints and these doubts and give themselves over to intellectual fanaticism and ruthless action. But I hope, and and this is a hope on which I think liberalism to some extent has to rest, that it's possible to also be inspiring, to also inspire people to emulate tolerance and moral integrity and resilience. I'm not confident of this, but I hope that it's true, and I try to practice what my subjects preach and to cultivate interactions and conduct guided by these qualities as much as I'm capable of doing. And while I think that some people will always be too far gone, too attracted to the the sort of ethos or uh, persona of ruthlessness and toughness and bullying that many public figures in recent years have adopted quite successfully. Um, I also do hope that a number of people still 
are able to respond to the, the inspirational qualities of decency and moral dignity in in public life. Now, one thing that I think makes this particularly hard now, and one thing that I'm very conscious of um, talking to you this moment where you are appearing as a, a little box on my screen and you know we are we are separated by an ocean. Um, you know, all of us nowadays, because of technology and because of the pandemic, spend so much of our time online. And that I think makes it all the easier to lose sight of the humanity of others, to just regard other human beings as positions to be refuted, avatars to be attacked, faceless masses to be trampled over in pursuit of some goal um, or, you know, objects on whom we can just vent our frustration and resentment and aggression. And I think that, you know, one thing, I mean, I'm, I'm too far gone into the digital mm -hmm. age to say myself or, or recommend to others simply disconnecting. Um, but, but trying to remember the humanity of other people, um, trying to approach and this doesn't necessarily mean that you approve of them or, or even that you refrain from judging them quite harshly and opposing them quite firmly, but remembering that other people are human beings who are complex and vulnerable and often um, more than just their positions and just their public statements. I think is important. Um, one of the things that ruthlessness uh, really rests on and that allows it to run wild is this tendency to not see other human beings as human beings. And I think trying, as difficult as it sometimes is, to remind ourselves of that is, is an important part of getting to a more decent, a more tolerable or livable society. Very good. So as we get into the end of our time together, and this has been a fantastic conversation, um, and for, as you just mentioned, for people to unplug now and then, but when they are plugged, where they can follow you online? Yes, well, to some extent, I, I have been practicing what I'm preaching and that I haven't been as active online. Uh, that's partly because much of my time is spent these days trying to keep my department's graduate program and graduate students more or less on the right track. So much of my time is, is therefore spent over email um, trying to respond to people and keep up with things. I do have a Twitter account. I, mm -hmm. I am fairly restrained in using it because I, I am worried about falling down that, that rabbit hole. But um, <laughs> I, I do have a Twitter account, and I do occasionally try to uh, either say things myself or more often uh, pass on interesting ideas or an interesting commentary from others. Uh, I, I have a faculty page um, at Georgetown through which people can keep track of my writings, and I'm hoping to set up a personal web page soon uh, where people can keep up with my writing and, and read some of it. Now, I should say I've been saying I hope to set up a personal website soon for several years now. So that we'll, we'll see when, when that actually happens. Yes. And, you know, also this, this is a podcast that will be going up on the internet and living there. So by, by the time people are listening to this, there, there may be more of a, an internet presence from me. Um, I will just say that uh, you can also find me in print, um, find my work in print um, in a few different volumes. I, I would certainly encourage people to uh, go out and if they're they're interested in what we've been talking about to get the book um, and read the book. 
liberalism in dark times. But I I do have several other uh, publications. One I'm afraid is a little difficult to recommend that people get. It's my first book um, called A Mind in Its Time, which is an intellectual biography of Isaiah Berlin, who, as you've said, is also a central figure in this book. And that that came out, it's shocking to think, but almost a decade ago with Oxford University Press. And unfortunately, it's terribly expensive, so I can't actually um, recommend that people go out and get it, but it does provide a sort of fuller historical backdrop to some of the things that I discuss in the new book. And I also should mention and, and plug um, a book which I co-edited uh, with my colleague and former teacher, Stephen Smith at, at Yale University, um, The Cambridge Companion to Isaiah Berlin, which is much more affordable and provides a nice range of voices writing about Berlin. Um, and those voices include the late Israeli novelist Amos Oz, um, a hero of mine, and also some really exceptional younger scholars like Gina Gustafsson and Alicia Steinmetz, as well as a number of, of distinguished scholars across different disciplines and continents. And I'm very proud of that mix that we were able to bring in that volume and, and of the quality of the contributions. And there are also a couple of chapters or, that I wrote or co-wrote in that book that I, I think are fairly good. But again, I, I would encourage people um, who have found this conversation interesting to uh, give liberalism in dark times a try. I think, or at least I hope that it's the best work that I've done so far, and it may also be more than enough for them um, of me. I'm going to put all these links in the podcast show notes. The book is Liberalism in Dark Times, The Liberal Ethos in the 20th Century by Princeton University Press. This is a must-have in your liberal bookshelf. Professor, this has been a great privilege to have you here on the podcast and for this illuminating conversation. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. Thank you very much. It was, it was a delightful conversation, even if the, the topics are somewhat grave. And wonderful talking with you. I'm back. Just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament, and has the support of the Social Liberal Movement in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone, and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs> <laughs>